You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then uh, we'll get back into the very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So let's pray. God, we once again want to praise you and thank you for the time that you've given us together. We thank you that you continually take care of our needs. We thank you for the rain today and how you're faithful to give us exactly what we need to survive. God, we thank you that you've also given us exactly what we need to survive spiritually and that you've surrounded us with men and women in this church who care about you as much as we do. And God, I just thank you that you've given us relationships that can encourage us. Um, relationships that, as we continue to get to know each, each other better, will also convict us. Um, God, where we can be a, a body of believers who fight sin together um, as we pursue holiness and godliness and um, everything that you've called us to be. And so, God, we pray that you'd be with our time this morning in the Word, that you would teach us. Holy Spirit would um, open our hearts to receive the Word today. God, that you would just instruct us. And, Father, I pray that we'd be faithful to apply it as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, just to kind of re- recap real quick from last week, um, we because uh, we kind of had to go pretty quick there at the end. Last week we were looking at verses 14 through 18. Um, it says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And then we come to 19 and 20, which is where we're going to focus our attention today. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, you'll remember up until verse 14 of last week, Paul has has really been just affirming the, the purity of his ministry. I mean, Paul is saying, look, we have come here for you. We haven't come for what we can get out of it. We haven't come for uh, any personal gain. We haven't come for personal recognition. We have simply come here to entrust the gospel to you because it's been entrusted to us. Paul's saying, look, as as a Christian, God has saved me. God has, has put the Holy Spirit inside of me. But in doing that, he hasn't just left it to me, that I have a responsibility to pass it on. And so he says, I've come to you without error, meaning that that I know the gospel. I know the gospel. I'm, I'm growing in the gospel. I've protected the gospel. Paul says we came without any type of, of flattery or any type of uh, deceit. We've come here to reflect the gospel. We haven't come here to trick you or to gain anything inappropriately from you. We've come to declare the gospel to you, and we want to invest the gospel in you. And um, so so the whole theme of chapter 2 that we've seen is discipleship, that Paul is all about making disciples in this church. And he's, he's just pouring it out to them, saying, this is what we came to do. Like a mother to a nursing child, 
like a father instructing his children, we have come to pour our lives into you. It's all about you. It's all about what we want to give to you. You're our focus. You're our desire. We said that he used some really strong language even in, in relaying to them how he felt about them. Uh, he's only been with them for a couple of months. But in that time, the Holy Spirit has really bonded him with these people. And he says, I, I affectionately desire you. And I want to see your spiritual growth happen. And so then last week, we, we turned our attention not to what Paul has done, but to what the church at Thessalonica did. Verse 14, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now we said right before this, Paul affirms them for receiving the word. That when Paul and his companions showed up to teach, these people were ready and willing to receive the word. That they received it not as words of men, but words of God. And so... They were faithful to listen. They were faithful to show up. They were faithful to take what they heard and then apply it to their life. And so Paul's just affirming them for for being responsible to listen to the word and then doing something with it. And now, because they've responded to the word, they're experiencing suffering. And so we said last week, responding obediently to the word leads to opposition. And we see that these people get this. It says, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. But we said also responding disobediently to the word leads to wrath because Paul gives them encouragement and says to people who are oppressing you, they will eventually be held accountable. It says that they are filling up the measure of their sins and God's wrath will come upon them or has come upon them at last. So we said... Responding obediently to the word leads to opposition. Responding disobedient leads to wrath. Now we said on the surface that looks like two bad options. Like if I do what I'm supposed to do, I get opposition. If I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I get wrath. Like it's a no-win situation. But we talked about how opposition is, is temporary here on this earth. That wrath comes at the end for eternity. So in the grand scheme of things, it's better for opposition now than to endure wrath down the road forever. But we also said as Christians, we have the comfort of knowing that opposition is used for our good. Wrath is not used for good for us. It still, it still glorifies God when he pours out wrath, but it's not for the good of, of the people receiving it. It's not good. And so we can be comforted in knowing that opposition that we receive in response to being obedient is worked for our good. So we said a couple of things about all that, that suffering is consistent with obedience. We said that uh, from the beginning, Christians have been suffering, that the pattern is unavoidable, that Jesus promised suffering, Jesus promised opposition. We said that Paul says, you, you're imitating the churches of God that are in Judea. Um, and we said that, that they weren't intentionally trying to do that, that they had probably never been to these churches. It wasn't like imitating Paul's example. They weren't looking at the blueprint. They weren't looking at the example of trying to imitate. They were just naturally imitating the churches in Judea. And we said the common factor was the Holy Spirit. That the churches in Judea had the Holy Spirit. Thessalonica had the Holy Spirit. So that when opposition came, they responded the same way because of the same Holy Spirit living inside of them. But we said that opposition is unavoidable. That Christians have been suffering from the beginning. And Paul even points out specifically that Lord Jesus was killed. Prophets were killed. Missionaries were driven out. And so we can, we can take 
comfort in knowing that his opposition comes to us, that it's consistent with what all Christians have endured for all time. We said that there's the warning that God will hold accountable those who have rejected his word. We said that wrath has come upon the people there, those Jewish people who were opposing the gospel. We said they were filling up the measure of their sins. We said that God in his patience and his endurance, he allows sinners to continue to have the opportunity to repent. But as they continue to reject repentance, they're filling up the measure of their sins, meaning that when God's wrath does come, it's the right thing. That it shows God to be just because they have committed so much sin that they deserve that judgment without a doubt. And we referenced the story in the Old Testament where uh, God told Abraham, he said, your people, the Israelites, I'm, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But they're going to have to go to Egypt for 400 years before they go to the promised land. Because I've got to let the people in the promised land fill up their sins. They've got to become more sinful so that when you go in there and kill them all. It shows me to be just because I've given them opportunity to repent, but they have not chosen to repent. Instead, they have filled up their sins to the max. So we said that God brings wrath on people who reject his word. We also said that resistance is consistent with obedience. Suffering is consistent and then resistance is consistent because these people were hindering. These Jewish people were hindering Paul from sharing the gospel. He says they drove us out. And because of that, they hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. We referenced back in Acts where Paul was sharing the gospel. Jewish people were rejecting it. Gentile people were receiving it. And we look at that crowd where Paul says, Jewish people, we're going to start going to the Gentile people. And the Gentile people were, were screaming, saying, yes, bring us the gospel. And the Jewish people said, get out of here. Not only do we not want it. We don't want you sharing it with anybody else either. So there was opposition. And then Paul clues us into some supernatural opposition. He says, we've tried to come back to you, Thessalonians. We've tried to come back to continue discipling you. Again and again, Paul says, I've tried. So Paul says, multiple times I've attempted to come back to you. But Satan has hindered us. Satan has hindered us. Which got me thinking as I was studying yesterday. At the end of the day, as Paul's evaluating his ministry, Paul says, I've been entrusted with the gospel. Which means I have a responsibility to share the gospel. Which means I have a responsibility to disciple people who have accepted the gospel. At the end of the day, Paul looks and says, the only things that have stopped me today are opposition from people that hate me. And Satan. I know for me, too often at the end of the day, I say, I didn't do more with the gospel because I was tired today. Or my schedule was just too busy. I got, I got busy doing too much other stuff. And I just didn't get a chance to, to disciple or, or share the gospel with people. Or I'm, I'm scared to do it. Those are typically the excuses that we use. Why don't we share the gospel more? Why aren't we more faithful to make disciples? We're tired or we're busy or... We're fearful. Paul says the reason I don't share the gospel more and make disciples more is because I've been driven out of places. I've had Satan and his forces actually working to stop me. My prayer for me is that it takes supernatural effort to stop me from making disciples. My prayer is that my own selfishness, my own tiredness, my own busyness is not what stops me from making disciples, that Satan and his forces have to get involved 
to stop what me and this church want to do for the glory of God. That it's not our tiredness and it's not our busy schedules and it's not our selfishness. That the city of Sonoy, in their rejection of the gospel, is fighting to drive us out. That Satan is hindering us from doing what we want to do here and we're not hindering ourselves. That's my hope is that we get to that point. That we lay aside everything else that stops us and now... Satan and his opposition of the gospel has to get involved to stop this church. My hope is that he doesn't have to look at Sovereign Hope and say, ah, they're taking care of themselves. They're stopping themselves from advancing the gospel. We'll focus our efforts somewhere else. May it be that we're the type of church that demands supernatural effort get involved to stop us from advancing the gospel. Paul says, we would be doing more. We just can't. We just can't because we're being opposed And Satan is hindering us. And we said that word hinder means he's tearing up the road. He's tearing up the road. And the picture was a military term where where supplies and troops were trying to get to an area. And the, the enemy was tearing up the road to keep them from being able to advance. That they were hindering the process of being able to advance. And Paul says that's what's happening to us. So then we come to this last two verses which... Would have been easy for us to just lump these in last week, um, but I felt they were significant in and of themselves to, to focus on for a whole week just by themselves. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. In your notes, there's some initial application from those verses. My anticipation... For the return of Christ, my anticipation for the return of Christ is directly related to the level of my obedience. My anticipation for the return of Christ is directly related to the level of my obedience. This is, this is where you would expect Paul to say, this is why I do all this. I mean, Paul's been very faithful to say... I'm not here for greed. I'm not here for sexual favors. I'm not here for personal recognition. I'm not here for anything for me. I'm here for you guys. I'm here to to pour my life into you. It's hard. Like I've suffered for it. I've been driven out. I've been beaten. I've had to suffer. I've been run out of town. I'm continuing to endure, endure opposition. As I try to come back to you guys... Satan in some way has gotten involved. We don't know if if Paul is sick. We don't know if if it's the thorn in the flesh, whatever that ended up being that that is hindering him. Something is keeping Paul from coming back here. And it it is not something that is easy, most likely, because Paul says, I want to be there more than anything. So it's something that is keeping Paul from getting there. And it's something that probably hurts. And so as he closes his chapter, you would expect Paul to explain, like, why do you do it, Paul? Why do, you, why do you live this kind of life? Why do you, as he says, toil and labor day and night? Remember, we said that Paul made a commitment. He says, I work hard so that I can disciple you guys. I do everything that I can during the day so that you don't have to pay me. Because I want you available to be discipled by me. Why do you do it, Paul? Why do you work so hard? Why do you labor? Why do you, why do you endure persecution and suffering? Why do you endure whatever it is Satan's throwing at you? Why do you do it, Paul? He says, my hope, my joy, my crown, it's you. 
It's you. Essentially, Paul's saying, I'm not looking for a reward when I get to heaven. I'm not expecting to get paid up when I get to heaven. When I walk through the gates and I, and I see Christ, I'm not expecting him to sign off on something and say, I really appreciate your service, Paul. Thank you so much for getting all these people into heaven. Here's your compensation. Here's your crowns or here's your trophies or here's your jewels. or Whatever you've heard before is, is what we get in heaven. And there may be a place for that. But Paul says, my joy, my crown, my reward, my trophy is seeing you guys there with me. That's why I'm doing this. Like, you're my pride and joy, basically, is what Paul says. You're, you're, you're my crowning achievement. At the end of the day, when, when, when it's all said and done, and everything's, everything's written, everything's done with, and we're all at the judgment seat of Christ, the only reward I need is seeing you there with me. I've poured my life into you, and it will mean more than any reward that I can get, simply to see you standing there with me. That's the point Paul's making here in 19 and 20. He says, my anticipation for the return of Christ is increasing because of how I'm being obedient. The more I see you grow, the more I see the gospel go out as a result of my ministry, it gives me a greater desire to see Jesus come back because I have something special to give to him. It's Paul saying, I want to show you something, Jesus. Like when Jesus shows up, Paul's like, hey, look what I got here. Not, not through my efforts, but look what I've got here. Like, this is where I've been pouring my life into. And as I was studying, I was thinking, like, maybe it's similar to how a teacher feels at the end of a school year when they do, like, the end of the school year program. And they're able to put their students up on stage. And they're able to perform and show what they've learned. And the teacher gets to see the, the, the excitement between the parent and the child over what the child has learned all year. For most teachers, it's all worth it for that. To see their students achieve and, and learn and accomplish. And to see the parent be able to celebrate with their child over what has happened. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I can't wait for Jesus to come back and see you guys. And be in your presence. And you be in his presence. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. My level of excitement and anticipation is increasing as the gospel continues to go out. And as I continue to be obedient in investing myself in you guys with discipleship. We said that we're entrusted with the gospel. We've been saying that all through chapter 2. Entrustment, we said, carries the idea of stewardship. So number one in your notes. If we've been entrusted with the gospel, stewardship demands accountability. Stewardship demands accountability. If we've been entrusted with something, then we would fully expect the person who has entrusted us with it to hold us accountable. I mean, if we've been entrusted with something, we expect to be held accountable for that entrustment. And we see that in Scripture. Number one, we've been given a mission. We've been given a mission. We know all too familiar, Matthew 28, 18, and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, we're given the ministry of reconciliation. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what, we are, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that we may be able to answer those who boast about uh, outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For, we are, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, 
That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us. There's that that stewardship, that entrusting idea. He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. That's the gospel. The way to be saved, the way to come to God, the way to have uh Enemies with God fixed to where it's friendship with God. That message has been entrusted to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the mission that's been given to us. You've been called to make disciples. You've been called to spread the ministry of reconciliation. That message We have a responsibility to advance the gospel. That's the mission that's been entrusted to us. And there's accountability that comes with that. There's accountability. Second there in your notes, B. I will be held accountable for that mission. I will be held accountable for that mission in Matthew chapter 25. In verse 14, it says, for it will be like a man going on a journey. Does anybody know what the it means? What, what will be like a man going on a journey? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is giving kind of a, a, a glimpse into how the kingdom of God works. Like the kingdom of God is a kingdom that um, reflects stewardship. He says it's going to be like a man going on a journey. Who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. 
So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says there's there's stewardship and accountability in the kingdom of God. I think there was joy in Paul's heart as he saw the gospel advancing, knowing that he was being faithful and obedient, knowing that when his master comes back at the second coming, he will be able to say, God, this is what I did with what you entrusted to me. You gave me all kind of advantages and I multiplied the gospel. I, I, I multiplied it. I was responsible with it and I did something with it. I did something with what you gave me. And it got me thinking to like the advantages that we have to an extent are far better than the advantages that people had in the early church. Thinking about the, the resources that we have for our own spiritual growth. The, the fact that we have the entire Bible put together in a language that we can read and understand. The fact that we can read and understand. Two advantages that a lot of people at that time wouldn't have had. They would have had maybe portions of the Old Testament... Probably not their own copies. They probably would have had to go to the synagogues to have it read to them. Which places a whole new mindset on meditating on scriptures that they had to meditate on what they heard weekly at their church service. Because they didn't have copies to read. They didn't have the New Testament put together yet. But it was being written at that time. We have the entire 66 books put together. In addition, we've got it put together most oftentimes with study notes on the side, with concordances built in, to where we can thumb through Scripture and be all over the place and and know exactly what we're doing there. We've been given godly men who have invested in our life through through the ministry of teaching. While some of us have come from churches that maybe weren't doing everything Um, completely correct. A lot of us have sat under good teaching for a long time. I was telling some of the guys at discipleship this week that, that sometimes I feel like the, the spiritual depth of men in our church is greater than what it would have been for a lot of the men that were being raised up as deacons and elders at that time. Because we've got guys who have been Christians for far longer than a lot of the men who were in leadership in that early church. We've got unbelievable advantages that have been given to us. We live in a country where we are free to proclaim the gospel if we choose to. I think God will will have high expectations for what we should have done with what was entrusted to us. If Paul can say, God, like I planted churches in the midst of opposition and in the midst of satanic attack. I hope that when Jesus comes back, I don't have to say, God, I would have had more for you, but I was just tired. Like, have you seen my schedule and how busy it is? Like, I have so much going on. This was the maximum I could do with the schedule and the physical condition and and tiredness that that I had. Paul says, like, I have been working hard, laboring, because I know I'm going to be held accountable for what was entrusted to me. And what's great about this is, see in your notes, I will be measured by my faithfulness. Not the results. And that's what's so encouraging. When, when the master interacts with these two servants that, that did something with it. The one went from five to ten. The one went from two to four. Just you would expect that the guy that went from five to ten would, would get the better commendation. Like, 
I mean, you, you, you really worked hard. You went from five to ten. All right, you went from two to four. I appreciate your efforts, but thank you. Like five to ten, like what a return I got on my investment. But we see the exact same commendation given to these guys. Look what it says in verse 23. This is coming to the guy with two talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's all about faithfulness. That's where, that's where the measurement is. If the, if, if the master had come back and the guy with one talent had said, I tried everything I could to multiply this thing and it just wouldn't multiply. I mean, I worked hard. I think you would have had the master saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You, you didn't multiply your talent, but you tried. And so you can enter into the joy of your master. But instead he said, I just buried it. Like, I didn't do anything with it. I didn't do anything with it. I just simply buried it. And that's where we see it, the displeasure come from the master. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, we're also told that it's faithfulness that is what brings God glory, not the results of our efforts. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Again, another phrase for gospel, for the word, the mysteries of God. Verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That they be found faithful is another translation for that word. It's not about... You've been entrusted with the gospel. You better, you better have a whole list of disciples lined up behind you when Jesus comes back. It's that you better have been found faithful with the gospel. When Jesus comes back, you will be able to be joyful about the return of Christ because you and your heart know that you have been faithful and obedient. I think that's what Paul's expressing to this church. He says, when Jesus comes back, you're my, you're my crowning joy. You're my pride and my joy. You're, you're the example that I have that I've been faithful and obedient. You're the example that I have that I didn't live for this world, I live for the other world. That I didn't live for myself, I live for others. That I advanced the gospel. Number two, not only does stewardship demand accountability, faithful stewardship results in boasting, not shrinking. Boasting and not shrinking. He says, you're my crown of boasting. You're my crown of boasting. This word for crown, it's the, um, it's the Greek word for the, basically the reward that they got in the Olympic Games. You may have seen this on movies. It's essentially a, uh, a piece of a plant that is, that is weaved together. So it's like a green wreath that they would wear as they won victory over Athletic competitions. Now, as I was studying this yesterday, I wrestled with whether or not Paul, through the Holy Spirit, puts this word crown here as a timeless picture or if it's cultural relevance. Meaning, if the Holy Spirit was writing the, the New Testament today, would it say this word? And, and I tend to think probably not. Paul, Paul may would have said, instead of, you're my crown of boasting, he may would have said, you're my, my trophy of boasting. Or you're my medal or ribbon of boasting. I don't know that there's anything particularly important from a timeless standpoint that we have to see it as a crown. 
I think it, it, it's simply conveying the idea that you're my reward. You're my trophy. You're what I want to get at the end of this race, seeing you with Christ. So faithful stewardship results in boasting. I want to see it from two different angles. One, my focus is to be my own salvation. If the gospel has been entrusted to us, then yes, we have a responsibility to be saved ourselves. We have a responsibility to respond to the gospel ourselves and to grow spiritually ourselves. There's some other references to crowns that we will receive in the New Testament. Some promises that are available to us. The first one is the crown of life. The crown of life in your notes. In James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Which God has promised to those who love him. Again, that word for crown is the wreath. It's not the... The royal diadem full of jewels that sometimes we picture when we think about getting crowns. Um, it's not the things that you used to pin on your vest if you were in Awana. You know, if you went through Awana, you used to get gold and silver crowns. And every time you memorize verses, you got jewels in them. That's not the Greek word for this. He says you're going to get the, the trophy of life, basically. You're going to get the reward for winning. When you get to the end of this, you're going to get the crown of life. Revelation 2.10 gives us the same picture. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Talking about the church at Smyrna. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Don't fear what you're about to suffer even though you're about to die. Some of you guys are about to die. He says, don't fear it because you will receive the crown of life. Secondly, we're told in 2 Timothy 4.8, we will receive the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me... But also to all who have loved his appearing. So we have the promise of a crown of righteousness. Thirdly, the crown of glory. The crown of glory. 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then lastly, the imperishable crown. The imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says that athletes today compete for a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable one. Now if you think about it in terms of what the actual crown was, then the fact that it's perishable makes a lot more sense. The fact that it was a plant that was weaved into a a crown, a a type of token of achievement, that thing's going to die. Far faster even than like a, a royal diadem would perish. So Paul's saying, you guys compete for like a dead plant to put on your head. We're competing for something that doesn't perish. What you receive in heaven never diminishes, it never perishes. Now, I for one growing up have heard that like we're going to receive crowns. That we're going to have actual physical Burger King type big giant crowns that we're going to cast at the feet of Jesus. 
I don't know if that's an accurate picture of what the New Testament says. Do I think that we'll be rewarded and commended for our faithfulness? Yeah. Do I think it'll be in the form of crowns? Maybe. It's tough to make that argument for me when the, when the wordage here is not even, not even trying to communicate that. I also think that when it talks about the crown of life, that it means you're going to get eternal life. Not that you have to have a crown on your head to be eternal. That you get eternal life. That you get Christ's righteousness. That on the day of judgment, when, when people are being judged according to their works, that you're found righteous because Jesus was perfect for you. And that your salvation is, is not going to perish. That it doesn't fade. That it's imperishable. And so we get these crowns or trophies or ribbons or medals, whatever you want to say. These are our rewards. This is, this is what eternity looks like for us. And so we have a responsibility to want those things, to respond to the gospel, to respond so that we do have eternal life, so that we do have uh, Christ's righteousness instead of our own good works on the day of judgment. But secondly, not only is my focus to be on my salvation, my focus is to be on the salvation of others. My salvation, or my focus is to be on the salvation of others. Because Paul says, my crown, what I'm looking forward to getting is seeing you guys with Christ. That's what I'm looking forward to. Paul already understands he's getting eternal life. He's getting righteousness. He's getting a glorified body. He's getting everything and none of it will diminish. None of it will perish over the stretch of eternity. He understands that he's getting all that. He says, what I'm really looking forward to is seeing you as my disciples enter into the presence of Christ. And to me, this is a foreign concept to us because we've been conditioned for most of our life to worry and to think about our own spiritual growth. That we come to church to hear the word and we're supposed to apply it to our life. Rarely do we think about how we can help apply the word to somebody else's life. We individualize our walk with Christ so much. It's all about what am I doing in my relationship with Christ. Rarely are we concerned with how someone else is doing in their relationship with Christ. And at times it gets expressed, but rarely do we really toil and labor and endure suffering for the spiritual growth of somebody else. And that's what Paul says. He says, I'm working hard, not just for for my salvation in the sense that, I'm working hard not only to see myself grow in Christ, but I'm working hard to see you grow in Christ as well. That's my focus. I'm working hard to pour my life into you because I care about your spiritual growth. As Paul focuses on eternal glory, the return of Christ, the hope of eternity, he can't help but focus on others. Paul understood a key element of his joy at the second coming involved having his disciples Meet Christ with him. We're also talking about the guy who at one point said, I would give up my salvation if others could be saved. And that's the intense desire that Paul had to see people enter into the presence of Christ. He says, if I could give up my own salvation so that Jewish people would be saved, I would do it. Now, does he literally mean that you would make that exchange? I don't know, maybe he's just using the, the, the extreme form of exaggeration that he has to communicate his love. But ultimately, Paul is saying, I love, I love my fellow countrymen. I love these churches that I'm planting. My reward for all that I've done in my life 
The reward that I want is to see them faithfully enter into the presence of Christ. Underneath that, the maturity and endurance of others must be our focus. If we're going to focus on the salvation of others, then their maturity and endurance must be our focus. Look what Paul says in Philippians 2.16. He doesn't just communicate this to the church at Thessalonica. This is a consistent theme that he has in all his churches. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's calling this church at Philippi. He says, don't grumble, don't question, don't complain, be blameless, be innocent, be children of God without blemish. Hold fast to the word of life. Don't turn your back on Christ. Be faithful. Why? Because at the end, when I get to the end of this race, when Jesus comes back and and we're going into eternity, I want to know that my life wasn't in vain. He says, I want to see you guys there. I want to know that everything that I poured my life into wasn't, wasn't in vain. That I didn't labor in vain, that everything that I did counted. He says, I have such a desire for my life to count. And for me, life counts when I'm ushering people into the presence of Christ. In Philippians Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He says the same thing to the church at Philippi. You're my joy, you're my crown. You're, you're my pride, my joy, my crowning moment. You're the, you're the crowning aspect of my ministry. I've got to see you in Christ's presence. So he says, stand firm. Be faithful. Don't stop following Christ. Colossians 1, 24-28. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Again, that idea of being entrusted to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, this is what I'm doing in response to being entrusted with the gospel. He says, I proclaim, I warn everyone, and I teach everyone with all the wisdom that God's given me. Why? So that I can present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then Paul directs glory right back to God and he says, I do all this, but it's all motivated by the energy that God fills me with because he's the one doing it through me. But he says, my focus, my desire, my, my reward that I'm looking for is to present people mature in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, a passage that we've already taught on. We exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul was every bit concerned about himself getting there. Paul wants to be in heaven for eternity, but he's not going alone. Paul says, if I'm going into the greatest thing ever, I'm bringing people with me. 
I'm bringing as many people as I can. I'm presenting as many people as I can mature in Christ. When Jesus comes back, I want to be found faithful, making disciples, pouring my life into individuals. So the maturity and endurance of others must be our focus. Secondly, the hope of their endurance must be our joy. The hope of their endurance must be our joy. 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I think Paul echoes that in his own epistles. He says, the greatest joy that I have is knowing that the people that I've invested my life in are following Jesus faithfully. And as we talk about being faithful to make disciples, we have to remember that the cause of their endurance is God, not us. The cause of their endurance is God, not us. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We don't save people. We don't make people mature in Christ. It's completely the work of the Holy Spirit, but there is human responsibility to it. We have a responsibility to make disciples, understanding that it's ultimately God who makes disciples. He tells us this in Jude. Chapter, or Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. It's God who ultimately presents people mature in Christ. But he uses us to do it. He uses us as his stewards, as his servants, to work it out. But ultimately, it's all motivated by God, and it's all accomplished by God. And ultimately, boasting in salvation of others is boasting in the cross alone. Galatians 6.14, we're told to boast only in the cross. Paul can boast in the salvation of others because they are a product of the preaching of the cross. Paul says, I boast only in the cross. And I boast in what the cross does, and it saves people, and it matures people. And so at the end of my life, I'm going to boast in the people who have been saved and sanctified by God because they are a product of the cross. They are a product of the gospel. Lastly, number three, faithful stewardship is rewarding. Faithful stewardship is rewarding. Paul's reward for all his labor and toil, seeing these people endure despite persecution, And despite the attacks of Satan and being united with Christ. He wants to see them endure despite persecution, despite the attacks of Satan, to be united with Christ. Now it doesn't negate the the fact that Paul may get rewards when he gets to heaven. We said this earlier. Paul's essentially saying, I'm not doing this for the money. It's like a pastor saying, I'm not doing this for the money. But he still receives a paycheck. It's like a teacher saying, I don't do this for the money, but I still get paid for what I've done. But ultimately, the reason I'm doing this is not for the money. So is Paul going to be rewarded in heaven? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think when he stands before God and whatever that looks like, there's going to be rewards and commendation for Paul's faithfulness. But ultimately, he's saying, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it for anything that Jesus can give me in heaven. My reward, my trophy, what I want 
is to see these people enter into Christ's presence faithfully for all eternity. He's saying, you're my focus. You're why I do everything. It's taking supernatural effort to stop me from discipling you more. I'm not here for personal gain. I'm not here for greed, money, favors, personal recognition. You're my reward. You being in heaven will make everything I've done worth it. I don't need a trophy. You're my trophy. That's Paul's attitude towards these people in this church. And it leaves me asking several application questions for us. You can jot some of these down. Will I care? Will I care about the salvation and growth of others as much as I care about myself? Will I care about the salvation and growth of others as much as I care about myself? Will I be found faithfully making disciples when Jesus returns? Will I be found faithfully making disciples when Jesus returns? Thirdly, will I be able to present people mature in Christ? Will I advance the gospel? Here's the thing for me and the question that I'm asking after studying this. Is that when Jesus comes back, will I have a pride and joy? When Jesus comes back, are there going to be specific people that I can say, Jesus, this is what I did. These are the people that I've poured my life into. These are the people that I'm presenting to you mature in Christ. I've, I've toiled and labored for these people. My question for you is, will you have people to present mature in Christ when he returns? Will you have people that you've invested your life in? I've shared with you before, Tyson and I had every plans of leaving this country and planning a church overseas. That, that was the plan. That's what we were doing. And the more we made plans to do it, the more it didn't feel right. And when we evaluated what we were going to do, we resolved that we were going to plant a church here in Sonoy. And the reason we planned on planting a church here in Sonoy is because specifically we targeted some of you and said, we want to present you mature in Christ. We're doing this for you. We're staying here for you. We're buying houses in Sonoy here for you because we want to see you presented mature in Christ one day. And we want to see you know how to present others mature in Christ one day. So my question to you is, are we going to be that type of church? Are we going to be faithful to make disciples? Or are we going to be hindered by our own busy schedules, by our tiredness, by our selfishness with our time? Or are we going to advance the gospel? We're not, we're not experiencing opposition right now. We're not experiencing hindrances by Satan right now. I, I fully believe that. I fully believe that this church is not growing with new believers because of our own hindrances of ourselves. We have to decide, are we going to advance the gospel or not? Are we going to make disciples or not? Are we going to be faithful to, to structure our time to advance the gospel? And I've had to ask myself this question. What would, like, would, would my life look way different if I was trying to plan a, a church overseas? What, what would my time look like? How would I spend my time on a daily basis if I was in another country and I was told to plant a church in another country. Would, would the things that I spend my time on be way different? It shouldn't be. 
It shouldn't be because I'm planning a church right here. But I've had to ask myself that question. And I told you guys, if we do everything like we've been doing it, the churches that you came from, a lot of you coming from, from our youth group at Mount Gilead, if we continue to do the things just like we were doing there, we're not going to see new believers added to this church. We'll continue to grow in depth, but we won't advance the kingdom. Advancing the kingdom means we have to change what we're doing. We have to be faithful to share the gospel with others. My hope is that we can learn to do that as a church. We're setting the foundation and groundwork. We're doing that with asking you guys to join this church. And we continue to plead to you guys to turn in your membership application so that we can get membership wrapped up. So that we can get moving and advancing this church, God's kingdom, by using the gospel in this area. We need you guys on board with us. We need you guys on board with us. So I ask you to continue prayerfully considering getting those things filled out so that we can pursue membership together. So that we can start advancing in the area of missions in this area. So that we can begin to work together to spread the gospel for his glory. So that new believers can come in. So that you guys have people to disciple. So that on the day of the second coming, you have people to present mature in Christ. Because you've been faithful to make disciples in this church. Let's pray. God, we desperately want to be a church like Thessalonica. God, we want it to be that we imitate them in the way they were imitating other churches. That they were a church that was responding to opposition, responding to satanic attacks faithfully. They were persevering in their faith. They were living in such a way that their testimony was sounding forth in all the areas around. That people knew about that church. God, we want people to know about our church, not for personal recognition, not for personal glory, but for your glory. God, we want to be found faithful at the second coming. We want to be found faithful with what you've entrusted to us. God, my prayer and desire is that that I would be able to present men in this church, women in this church, as mature in Christ when you come back. My desire is that they would be able to present people mature in Christ when you return. Through the efforts of, of missions in this church. God, I pray that you would make your, your kingdom great here in Sonoy through Sovereign Hope. God, that you would raise us up to, to accomplish what you desire here. God, I pray that ultimately at the end of the day, that it's not tiredness and laziness, selfishness that's stopping the gospel, that it's opposition, that it's satanic forces that are keeping the gospel from going completely out here. God, we pray that you would use us for your glory and honor. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.